sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumption of sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Would you would you pray with me? Here I come up with a prayer. Father, I, I pray that that would be our posture before you, before your word, open to you, um, expecting uh, that there are things that we don't understand and things that we need to repent of and grow out of. Um, make that our posture here as a church, humility, and just give us a hunger for your word, um, for all the things we see here, and, and just give us a, a deep desire to know you, to know about you just to have a, a relationship with you that, that fits with that truth. Just use Aaron as he proclaims your word today. Um, give us open hearts, I pray. Christ name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Uh, getting over a little bit of a head cold that I had early in the week, so if I need to take a minute to clear my throat or grab a drink of water, please bear with me today. <coughs> like that. Um, well, whenever we go downtown for a lunch meeting, uh, Kevin will often regale me with stories of Carus's early nomadic church planting days. Uh, when some of y'all spent your Sunday mornings hauling chairs or setting up pipe and drape and messing with portable sound systems. And then when I first started as an intern here at the church, I was given uh, the historic downtown walking tour of places Paris almost met or had office space for a while. We're downtown, you know, okay. See this building? Uh, we looked at a meeting here, but yeah, I just needed too many renovations to have a kid's space. Uh, this space over here, you know, if you look in the window, you can still see the built-in bookshelves that I had put in there. Uh, oh, we used to, you see that closet? We used to cram 12 people in there for staff meeting every week. Uh, this spot right here, oh, it's so awesome. I know it's, it's still vacant. Um, we would have loved to, to meet there 10 years ago, but Stink Crocky owns it. Another one of the things that always comes up during those walks and those conversations is uh, that a car is kind of a historic element of our identity has been ministry in and to the arts community of downtown Columbia, that North Village neighborhood. Uh, at one point, there was an MC that met down there. Uh, these folks, they, they built relationships with local artists and musicians. Uh, they went to shows, bought their work. Uh, the church even for a while had an art gallery downtown. Uh, and one of the things that I just, I love so much about our church is that uh, kind of per capita, you know, we seem to have so many makers here at our church. People who fix and build and paint and write and rhyme and compose and restore things that they found on Facebook Marketplace. And maybe you're not one of those people. Maybe you're like me and you're more of a, just a watcher. You like to see the finished product. That's okay too. If everyone was always busy doing the making, 
there'd be less people available to do the admiring. And that's kind of one of the goals of making, of art in general, is that it would be admired. That it would bring joy to other people, and that it would give us a glimpse of what the artists themselves are like. <clears throat> well, this morning, as we look at our passage, we'll read this poem about the beauty of God's world and God's word. In theological terms, this is called the doctrine of revelation. That is, how God has revealed himself to humanity. We'll see in the former verses this doctrine of general revelation, how God reveals his character to all of humanity through his creation. And then in the latter verses, the doctrine of special revelation. That is, how God reveals his will, particularly to his people through the scriptures. Before we begin, uh, real quick, I just want to clarify something. We'll talk a lot about you know, God's creation this morning. Uh, but one thing that this sermon is not going to be, this is you know, not going to be a discussion on you know, how we're interpreting Genesis 1 or anything like that. So whether you uh, kind of hold to a, a young earth, an old earth, uh, an evolutionary creation perspective, uh, what I mean when I talk about God's creation is this. Regardless of how he did it or how long it took him, the Bible tells us that all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And also, he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. If it exists in this world, it was made in some way by God, and it doesn't exist right now apart from his will holding it together. So save, uh, we're going to save our, our Genesis 1 takes for uh, the angry emails that I'll read this week. Uh, but for now, <clears throat> let's dive into our psalm. Psalm 19, verse 1 starts off and says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, I know that there are a lot of The Office fans here this morning. Uh, if you haven't seen it, that's okay. You're, you're in the minority. Um, but you've probably seen this scene that I'm about to reference at some point on social media. Uh, there's an episode where the, the manager, Michael, he's having money problems. And he gets advice from one of his kind of senior co-workers that if he just declares bankruptcy, he can have a financial fresh start. So he walks into the main office in front of everyone and just kind of randomly shouts, I declare bankruptcy, and then just walks away like nothing happened. Uh, a bit later, one of the other guys on his staff comes in and opens the, his office door and is like, hey, you know, like, just because you say the word bankruptcy, you know, doesn't mean anything's going to change. To which Michael famously replies, I didn't say it. I declare it. <laughs> Friends, the heavens declare the glory of God. They don't just say it. They don't just text you about it. They don't just stick a note to the door of your fridge and hope that you catch it when you get home from work. The heavens declare the goodness and the greatness and the grandeur of our God. They announce it with authority. They proclaim the work of his hands. 
When we look up at the skies, we ought to be overwhelmed by what God has made and what it shows us about him. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Kind of an interesting double negative there. But all day long and all night long, God's creation is teaching us about what he's like. Day and night, they teach without using words, but their lessons are heard by everyone. The psalm tells us that even without speech, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. <clears throat> This next, the next few verses are my favorite in this psalm, verses 4 to 6. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. Most of you may also be familiar with uh, painter Bob Ross. I went home to my parents' house a while back for a holiday break, and uh, unbeknownst to me, my dad had kind of developed a fascination with reruns of Bob Ross's show, The Joy of Painting. Kind of surprising, because my dad doesn't watch a lot of TV, and when he does, it's either Clint Eastwood, Russell Crowe, or college football. But what's Bob Ross's, you know, kind of famous thing that he says, you know, while he's painting his wholesome nature scenes, you know, how about we put a happy little tree right there? A happy little tree. In these verses, David is painting for us, with his words, a happy little son. We get to verses 4, 5, and 6, David's like, let me show you a happy little son right here in the sky. In them, the heavens... God has made a tent for the sun. Every morning the sun rises with the dawn, bursting into the darkness like a groom leaving his chamber. <clears throat> I love weddings. Over the summer, I got to officiate a wedding. I got to uh, attend a couple more. I still have one more on the docket for this fall. Uh, one wedding I went to, it was pretty cool. The, the ceremony took place on this riverbank. And then, you know, and then on the other side of the river was these, were these bluffs, a cliff face. Um, and in the bluffs, there was a cave. The wedding venue uh, had built into that cave a, um, you know, like a, a dressing room for the, the groom and the groomsmen to get ready, to get dressed. And then attached from the bluffs to the ceremony platform, um, like a floating platform that would carry them across. Uh, and now, unfortunately, I didn't get there early enough to see them you know, cross the water on the platform, but I can only imagine how cool of a moment that was. Uh, the bridegroom emerging from the darkness, riding on the waters. When the bridegroom emerges from his chamber, you know that the show is about ready to start. And you know that something amazing and beautiful and glorious is about to happen. Every day, when the sun emerges from the horizon, he breaks into the darkness powerfully, 
ready to display for us something amazing and beautiful and glorious. <clears throat> Theologian uh, G.K. Chesterton says in his classic book, he says this uh, more eloquently than I could. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning. But the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy. This is a really relatable part. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality because they are uh, in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, again, again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old. And our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. But it's not merely that day after day, year after year, eon after eon, God excitedly says to the sun, hey, go do that thing again. Go show the world what I'm like. But what else does scripture say to us? Like a strong man, the sun runs its course with joy. So day after day, year after year, eon after eon, God tells the sun to rise, and the sun says back, seriously? I get to do it again? Another day of showing them what you're like? I talked to uh, one of the guys in Cars Youth a couple of weeks ago. He told me that he's getting ready for a cross-country season coming up. If you're a cross-country runner, you're a strong person who runs their course with joy. You have to be. When I played football in high school, uh, the cross-country team would circle around our practice field all afternoon, and their shirts would say, you know, our sport is your sport's punishment. <laughs> so true. If you run cross-country, you're not running to uh, catch a pass or drive to the basket or uh, dive for a fly ball. You're running because you love running. That's it. That's like the sun. It's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. Horizon to horizon, the sun runs every day with joy. Excited that he gets to show the world just a little bit of what God is like. Church, when we talk about this idea of general revelation, of creation revealing God to humanity, we have to make a pit stop in Romans chapter 1. Here, Paul kind of lays out this doctrine in detail for us. Here's what he writes. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to us, because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul says, everything people need in order to know that God exists has been given to them. Just look around. The heavens declare the glory of God. Paul even emphasizes that God's creation doesn't reveal him in a mysterious or cryptic kind of way, but that it's been made plain, can be clearly perceived, and we're without excuse. God's revelation, though, uh, through creation, doesn't just tell us that he exists. It also shows us a little bit of what he's like. His invisible attributes are on display. Over the summer, my wife Caitlin and I, we went on vacation uh, camping through the Dakotas for a week. Saw so many awesome things. Uh, mountains, rivers, rock formations, trees, lakes, badlands, caves, bison, and, of course, Mount Rushmore. This is going to sound crazy, and I promise I'm not just trying to hate on a national monument. Uh, but if I'm being honest, Mount Rushmore was the least impressive thing that we saw all week. Not that it was bad, it was awesome. But as we drove back home and we started power ranking, you know, all the things we saw, what's number one, what's number two? Uh, that one just kind of was near the bottom of the list for us, as cool as it was. The more I thought about that, here's what I kind of realized is Mount Rushmore is awesome because you have to consider that people repelled off the side of a mountain with jackhammers to carve out like actually good resembling faces of people. But it still just didn't compare to the natural wonders. Because when it kind of comes down to it, even in light of its hugeness, Mount Rushmore is still statues of people. But you know what? No one, no human being could ever possibly be creative enough to look at a vast plain, just grass, a field, like a huge field of grass, and say, you know what this needs? You know what I'm going to put here? 40 miles of badlands. No one could ever be creative enough to make that. Has anyone ever been to Devil's Tower in Wyoming? No human could ever be creative enough to fill a volcano with lava, wait for it to harden, and then wash away the sides of the volcano. No one's that creative. I was sharing these thoughts with Caitlin, and she said that um, in an art class she had in college, uh, they talked about how all art is derivative of something. That mean, you know, meaning that, like, for instance, Mount Rushmore, it's derived from, inspired by, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, and then, you know, other form, all other forms of art and literature stem in some way from sources of inspiration or our personal experiences. But when God created our world, nothing else existed besides Him. That means one of two things. Either God's creation is the 
only underived, the only truly unique thing that exists, and or, as Scripture tells us, it's derived from its pre-existent creator. That blew my mind. I've been, I, this, our vacation was like in July. I've thought about that every single day since then. That's what Paul's talking about when he says that creation reveals God's attributes. We see just a glimpse of his magnitude when we stand at the base of the Black Hills. We see just a glimpse of his peace when we sit next to a calm mountain lake. Just a glimpse of his kindness when the sun shines on our face in the morning. Just a glimpse of his raw power when a you know, one-ton buffalo wanders into your campsite. Just a glimpse, just an, ex an experience of his grace and his deliverance when you wake up the next morning and your tent hasn't blown away after a lightning storm. So God reveals his character to all humanity through his creation. It's a grace, but there's also a tension as well. Because Paul tells us in Romans 1 that this general revelation, it's enough to inform us that God exists and that we should worship him, but it's not quite enough for us to know him and relate to him and obey his will. For that, we need more. We need a special kind of revelation. God's special revelation is what we read about in the later part of Psalm 19. We see this, these phrases repeated over and over. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. To know and obey God, we need him to speak to us through his word. We can see this even in the language that David uses when he writes this song. When talking about creation, he uses the formal, impersonal, positional title, God. The heavens declare the glory of who? God. The supreme spiritual being and transcendent creator of everything. But whose law and testimony and precepts are good? The Lord's. Yahweh's. The personal, covenant-making, imminent king of creation. When we engage with God's special revelation, we're called into a special relationship with him. One that's personal and intimate, where we can know him and call him by name. <clears throat> so let's talk about God's word for a little bit. First off, let's clarify what David is talking about when he talks about God's word. Right at the beginning, we see this word, law, in this section. Remember, we have to remember, when David is writing this song, his Bible is probably just the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah, as they called it. What's Torah? A common way we translate that word is law. And while there are a lot of laws in the Torah, that's actually probably not the best way to understand these books. When you see that word law or Torah in the Bible, here's what I want you to think about. Relational instruction. This is a better way for us to understand the concept because for us today, laws are things that are impersonal, 
sometimes arbitrary or unnecessary, sometimes harmful in their application, but not the Torah. The difference between law and relational instruction is one of origin. Where, how does this law come about? How does this Torah come about? When it, uh, when it comes to laws, the rules create the relationship. The rules create the relationship. But with Torah, the relationship creates the rules. When God calls his people, he tells them, before the commandments show up, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. Relationship first. Then the rules are established in order to set relational boundaries and expectations. God says, okay, if we're going to make this work, if I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, rule number one, no other gods before me. Think about it like this. The relationship of marriage precedes the requirement that you be faithful to your spouse. Maybe let's make it a little bit more frivolous. There's no law that says that I have to clean up my beard trimmings off the bathroom counter. If I don't do it, I haven't sinned in any way, you know, it's not a moral thing. But being married to my wife necessitates that if we're going to consistently be on good terms with one another, I really should clean up after I trim my beard. Does that make sense? These relational instructions, they foster the ongoing health and intimacy within the relationship. So David, the psalm writer, sings the praises of God's word and instructions. They're perfect, they're sure, they're right, they're pure, clean, and true. They're good for reviving our souls, making our hearts rejoice. They make us wise and enlightened. They're, righteousness, or they're righteous and they will endure forever. Do we believe that? If we say we do, do we live that way when we relate to God's word? What about this? If someone sat in front of us on a table, one regular gold bar, a stack of perfectly pure gold bars, then God's word, which one would we want the most? David tells us in verse 10, don't be fooled. Take the most valuable thing. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Growing up, I uh, never really cared for the taste of honey that much. It was kind of sweet, but like not as sweet as like a Mountain Dew Baja Blast. <laughs> but when we moved back to Columbia, we started going to the farmer's market on Saturday mornings, and we started buying local honey. And let me tell you, that stuff is life-changing. I finally understood why people enjoy honey so much. Seriously, I went through a phase where like honey was like my condiment of choice. I put on everything. <laughs> when we speak or pray or sing or read aloud God's word, how does it taste in our mouths? David says, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. It's sweeter than honey, not just grocery store honey, but that good local honey. Church, do we love God's word as much as David does? I know that, um, especially with the distraction of technology, it can be hard to, to sit down and read books today. 
Uh, it's hard for me. Some of us, we may not even feel like we're very good readers. We're not very strong at reading. Um, but can I give you a little bit of encouragement? God made you to be a reader. It's true. He did. How do I know? Because God, in all of his infinite wisdom, decided that the best way to reveal himself to humanity was through a book. You may not feel like a reader. You may not perceive yourself to be a reader. But God has literally made you a reader because God has literally made you to know his will and have a relationship with him. God made you a reader. David provides one final meditation on the scriptures. He says, moreover, by them, by his words, uh, your servant is born. In keeping them, there's great reward. If you'll ever utilize a household budget? If you don't, you should. When Caitlin and I talk through our budget, it's always kind of a drag. We always have to have this conversation about how much money should be in the eating out line item. If it were up to me, that's where like most of our money would go. <laughs> but so it's sad when she tells me um, we also have to like pay our mortgage. <laughs> I have I have a feeling that most of us feel more warning than reward when we read God's laws, when we read His instructions. But the two go hand in hand. God gives us instructions to live by, not because He's a cosmic killjoy or something like that. But because he doesn't want us ruining our lives eating Taco Bell when we've got a mortgage to pay. Because God has created our world, he knows how it's supposed to work. Why would we trust our lives to anyone's instructions but his? Alright, so we've talked about God's general revelation through his creation and his special revelation through his word. But you know the Bible actually tells us there's one other way in which God has revealed himself to us. It's the most perfect way. It's the best way that he could be revealed. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, if, you, if you want to flip over there quickly with me. That's uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, God revealed himself in different ways throughout history. By the prophets, special revelation, and he references the creation general revelation. But he says, now, after long last, God has revealed himself fully and finally to humanity in the person of Jesus, his son. I love how the writer writes it. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the shiniest part of God's glory. The sun, that strong servant and all his radiance, isn't just pointing to us, pointing us to God. He's pointing us to the sun, pun intended. 
I tell my sixth graders all the time, the best way to understand the New Testament is to understand the Old Testament. Similarly, what's the best way to know what God is like? To know what Jesus is like. Over the summer, uh, if you're you know, a college sports fan, kind of the hot topic has been the, you know, the players getting paid, being able to have sponsorship, stuff like that. Uh, the rules are, are called name, image, and likeness. The rules, the deals, you know, can you, can I sell my autograph? Can I put my face on a bag of chips? Can you get money for that? Um, Jesus is the perfect name, image, and likeness of the Father. You see Jesus, you're seeing God. Has anyone ever asked you if you know someone or really you've just only ever heard of them? I always say, ah, I don't know them, but I know of them. That's kind of how it is with the varying degrees of God's self-revelation. We see the creation around us, and we know some things about what God is like. We read his instruction. We know what he expects of us. When we read about his son, we know him. The rushing water reveals God's power, but Jesus reveals the gentleness of God, the way he cares for the vulnerable and oppressed. The mountains reveal God's majesty, but Jesus reveals his mercy and the love that he has for us when he died on the cross for our sins. The lightning reveals God's raw power, but Jesus reveals God's raw love for sinners like you and me and his grace and his kindness in the way that we can only know when we know a person. Chorus, God reveals himself most fully in the person and work of Jesus, in the gospel of grace that he gives to us. What are we supposed to do about that? How do we respond? Let's read the final verses of our psalm and we'll wrap up. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Church, who among us can discern our own errors? The proper response to God's gospel revelation is not just that realizing God is gracious, but realizing we're desperately in need of that grace. This goes equally the same for those of us who are here and we're not Christians, we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, and for those of us who have been Christians for years, decades. The psalmist knows that there's sin in his life and he wants to repent from it all. Big and small. He says, God, keep me from presumptuous, high-handed, arrogant sins. The sins that I do, not even though I know they're wrong, but because they're wrong, and I still like doing them anyway. God, get that junk out of my heart, he cries. But it's not all. He also prays, God, even in those parts of my life where I think I'm doing great, show me my hidden sins. Get rid of my secret faults. Folks, that's a prayer that most of us don't want to pray. But it's a prayer of maturity. Why is this the right response to God's revelation? 
Well, we're God's creations, aren't we? That means our purpose is also to reveal and reflect what God is like to the rest of our world. But we can only do that if, like the psalmist prays, what's in our hearts is acceptable in God's sight. If what's in us is the new heart that the resurrection power of Jesus can create in us. Let's pray. God, you have blessed us with the gift of yourself. We praise you and we thank you for all the ways that you show us who you are. For the beautiful world that you've made, God, we thank you. For your instructions that you've shown us, God, we thank you. And for your son who you gave to us, bringing grace and truth and life and new hearts, and we praise you. God, transform us and the way that we know you through these things. God, rid the sins from our hearts and make us more like Jesus. God, as we continue to worship you this morning, uh, would you bless us with a greater sense of unity around your table, both with you and with one another, our brothers and sisters here today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.